0: This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Every little boy loves the idea of becoming a pirate. Now, never mind the fact that it's immoral and illegal, little boys find everything having to do with pirates to be really cool. The eye patch, the sword, the hook, the bandana, Peter Pan, Treasure Island, Jack Sparrow, Roberto Clemente. Everything having to do with the pirates is really cool to little kids. September 19th is International Talk Like a Pirate Day, and it's gaining momentum. In fact, I would say that if you uh, really hold this uh, to be precious, next year you don't have to go to work on that day. It is on a Friday, and I'm trying to convince Harry that next year on International Talk Like a Pirate Day that the entire youth lesson could be done uh, talking like a pirate. Hello, boys and girls. This is Harry. Well, one of my favorite pirate words is the word plunder, plunder. Jimmy Buffett, in one of his songs, "The Pirate Looks at 40, says that the cannons don't thunder, there's nothing to plunder. I even like the sound of that word. And it's a war term, and it basically means, to the victor goes the spoils. In other words, once you have conquered your opponent, you have the right to go in and take anything from them that belongs to them, that is a value that you want. Pirates' ships used to sail up along other ships and this was called a broadside and they would try to request from them that they would raise the white flag, and if they didn't, well, then they would fire a cannon shot over the bow, and if that didn't work, then they would fire a cannon shot into the ship, and if that didn't work, they would come up alongside the other ship, they would swing onto the other ship, and then they would defeat the captain and crew, and after that, what they would do is they would plunder the gold that was in the hull of the ship. But did you know that plunder is also a biblical word? Turn please to Exodus chapter three. Exodus chapter three. When last we saw Moses, he was having a conversation with the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who was manifest on a in a burning bush in Mount Horeb. Moses is eighty years old. He's thinking that his his ministry career is over, but God calls him to go back to Egypt after a forty year absence and to approach Pharaoh and to request the release of two million Hebrew slaves who were working for free for Pharaoh. Moses has a couple of questions for God. First of all, he asks the Lord, who am I? The Lord responds by saying, you are the guy who is with me. I will be with you. And then Moses asks the question, who are you? If I go back and the elders of Israel should ask, what is my name? You shall say to them, I am who I am has sent you, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, the self-existent God. And we will see this self-existent God in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, who said, Before Abraham was, I am. And so before Abraham was, I am, meaning that Jesus Christ is the self-existent God, speaks to Moses At the burning bush and tells him his name. And then before he allows Moses to respond again, the Lord Christ gives Moses a series of prophecies or promises or predictions in verses 16 to 22. In fact, I count eight of them. And that's what I'm going to read right now is our text. Exodus chapter 3 verses 16 to 22. As I go through, let's look at the promises that the Lord makes To Moses, he says to him, go to the elders of Israel and gather them together and say to them, the Lord Jehovah, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And so we see here something which has already been written in the book of Exodus, that God is referring to himself as the covenant-keeping God. He's referring to the relationship that he has with them by being the covenant-keeping God. And then he also talks about his heart, that he looks upon them and he loves them and he is concerned for them. In verse 17, he starts to make the promises and he says, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. That's the first promise. And here's the second one. To the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So not only am I going to take you out, but I'm going to bring you into the good and la- good land. And notice the third promise. The, the promise is, is that will be a productive land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's what's going to happen. Promise number four, verse 18. And they, the elders of Israel, will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. I am, Lord willing, going to have an opportunity later on in the book of Exodus to explain why they are only requesting a three-day journey. We're not going to get into that today, but we see, uh, beginning in verse 19, the fifth promise, and that is that Pharaoh is not going to let them go. But I know that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So, in verse 20, we see the next promise, this is the sixth promise, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, and this is known as the ten plagues, and here's the seventh promise, and that is, after this, he will let you go. Which brings us to the eighth promise, and this is the one that we're going to concentrate on this morning, and it's found in verses 21 and 22, this is our concentration, and I will give this people, speaking of the Hebrews, favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder I these you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now, even though this last prophecy about plundering the Egyptians is going to be the only one we're going to concentrate on this morning, let me just say that the first seven are not unimportant. But I'm choosing this morning to skip over those for a couple of reasons. First of all, because we've already dealt with a lot of these already. Some of this is repeated. Or because we're going to deal with it in the future when we address future chapters in the book of Exodus. But they are all very important. And our concentration on number eight should not take away the fact that there are eight of them and the cumulative effect of all eight promises. I want that to sink in for just a moment. Because there are a lot of specific, detailed, glorious prophecies and predictions and promises and revelations which God gives to Moses. And I want you to consider the full weight of them all together in rapid fire succession in such a way that Moses did not have an opportunity to concentrate or to think or to meditate on any of them. But they were just given one right after another. And I believe the reason they were given this way was to strengthen the weak faith of Moses at that time. God doesn't even give Moses a chance to catch his breath or to collect his thoughts. God basically says, I'm going to do this, and 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 this. this." The barrage of prophecy that comes at him in the form of a monologue was, as I said, intended to strengthen the faith of Moses. And hopefully today, by just looking at one of them, our faith will be strengthened as well. But that will not happen unless... The Lord is pleased to move. So let's just bow our heads once again in a word of prayer. And I would like to pray for us that the word of God will touch us in a profound way today. Our precious Father in heaven, through Jesus Christ, we come to you asking specifically for your empowerment and your blessing upon the preaching of the word. That, Lord, that this would bring about a change in our lives that would last until the day of our deaths and that we would, Lord, see jesus christ in the text and that we lord would be interested in the text that we would understand the text lord that it would be presented clearly and that lord you would receive all of the glory and so lord please use this passage today to advance your kingdom be with me this morning give me lord a heart for the gospel and a heart for the people And Father, may we, as we gather here today, Lord, say that it has been good to have been in the house of the Lord. Please, Lord, bring about great things through the preaching of your word this day. In Jesus' name, we humbly ask this. Amen. Well, let me once again read verses 21 and 22 so that it will be fresh in your mind because this is going to be our concentration today. Here we go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor. And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Okay. Let's look at this, please, from the perspective of Moses, not when he wrote it several decades later, but when he experienced it and when he heard it for the first time. He does not view the Egyptians as being favorably disposed toward the Hebrews, and for good reason. First of all, because he himself had his life threatened by the Egyptians when he was a little baby. They wanted to throw him and every other little baby into the Nile River to kill him. He lived in the palace, and I'm sure countless times he heard with his own ears the Egyptians speaking of how they despised the Hebrews. He saw with his own eyes an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew. He probably saw that many times. And the last memory that he had of Egypt is that they wanted to kill him. Now, I will grant with good reason, because he was a murderer, but nevertheless, he does not have good feelings about Egypt. Now fast forward 40 years, all of these memories that he has about Egypt and the Egyptians and the way that they hated the Hebrew people, and all of a sudden he is told by God that the Egyptians are going to shower the Hebrews with valuables. It would be as if you were to say to me, Pastor Moore, you'll never believe what's happening over at the Department of Motor Vehicles. You go to the DMV. You'll find a place to park. It'll be a free place to park. And when you walk in, well, they will greet you there with coffee and donuts. And after that line, there will be no line. You'll be greeted. You'll be taken up immediately to the counter where you will find someone who is both courteous and competent. You don't need the proper documentation. They're not going to send you home to get that. You'll be in and out of there in five minutes and there will be a pleasant person at the door greeting you with a smile and saying goodbye to you as as you go. That's the new DMV I wouldn't believe you I wouldn't believe you for one second and that's probably why Moses might have had trouble believing what the Lord said about the Egyptian people and notice why else it might be difficult for Moses to believe this because what he is saying here is so peculiar and unlikely and specific in its prediction First of all, he's told that you, these people, the Hebrews, will find favor. That is really unlikely, seeing as how they hated the Jews. Usually, when you plunder someone, the men of war will come in and they will take whatever they want, but once they've taken it, there's no good feelings between the two sides. You'll also notice that the plundering was done by women, by women. The women will be the one doing the talking. I mean, I know that there are some pirates who are women, but generally speaking, pirates are men and soldiers are men and men go in and men fight wars and men take the plunder. But here, it's going to be the women that are doing the plundering. And notice what they're going to have to do in order to plunder. All they're going to have to do is talk. All they're going to have to do is ask. There will be no cannons, there will be no swords, there will be no shots fired. There will be no arguing, there will be no begging, there will be no debating, there will be no stealing, there will be no persuasion, there will be no swashbuckling. There will be nothing except talking, just asking. And then the Egyptians will comply. And notice, it's very unusual what they are going to give. They are not going to be giving away their costume jewelry or their plastic silverware. They are going to give away their gold and their silver. It's not as if requests are going to be made for the journey and the Egyptians are going to say, all right, I will give you a bottle of water or I will give you a a common plate or something. No, it is going to be valuables and notice, I think this is the most unusual feature of the entire prophecy, is that it will be in such abundance that you will not be able to carry it all yourself, but you're going to have to take some of it and drape it on your sons and your daughters, We don't have that much expensive jewelry in our home. But what little we have, we don't drape it on our children for fear that it would be lost or that it would be stolen. But here it's going to be in such excess that you're going to be able to put the bling on the kids and let them go out of town. The language that God uses here is the language that is described in warfare. Again, It's a pirate term, plunder. But yet the unusual thing is there will be no war and there will be no violence whatsoever. You'll just ask and you will receive. I think most of you know that we have planted a church in southern Queens and the church planter there is Peter Nakotra and for many years, for a decade or better, that church met in the Pilgrim Congregation in Richmond Hill. They met in the basement there for a very modest rent. And as they were leaving there to go for bigger space over in Woodhaven, I said, Peter, before you go, here's what I would like you to do. Go to the people who run the church, the pilgrim congregation, and simply ask them if they will give us the church. And so, to, so Peter went to the people of the pilgrim congregation and said, would you give us the church? And you know what their answer was? No, we're not going to give you the church. Of course we're not going to give you the church. And that's what makes this such a great illustration because that's what happens when you make ridiculous requests. May I please have all of your gold and your silver? Certainly you can have that. You see, that is not going to happen unless something unusual happens and something unusual did happen. And we read about its fulfillment in Exodus 11.3. It says the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And then later, one chapter later, in Exodus 12.36, it says that the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. But let's go back to the burning bush for just a moment. From the perspective of Moses, he had absolutely no idea what was going to happen, and even more importantly, he didn't have any idea why it was going to happen or what it meant. But we are at an advantage because we have the full word of God. Hindsight is 2020, And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to leave the burning bush and look at this event, the plundering of the Egyptians, in light of the entire Bible and to analyze it from God's perspective. What can we learn from the plundering of the Egyptians? We can learn many things, but I want to limit it this morning to three truths. Here's the first truth, and that is that God changes hearts. God is the one who changes hearts. You know, persuasion is a very valuable skill. Persuasion, quite simply, is this. You make your case to an individual and you change the way that they think, the way that they feel, and eventually the way that they act. You convince them to be different than the way that they currently are. When you do that, you have accomplished something. And I want to say that it is very rare if you can find someone who can bring about any movement in the thinking of another person, particularly if they are walking in one direction and you stop them And you convince them that the direction that they are going is not right. You change their thinking. If you are really good, you can slightly change someone's thinking. But notice what has happened here in this passage. You have an entire nation who is predisposed toward hating and despising and using and abusing the Hebrew people. And they have done so for close to 400 years. And then all of a sudden, we don't have just one woman who used to be a maid or a slave in a house going into the person for whom she worked and saying, you know what, we are leaving, and as we leave, I would like you please to give me a little something for the journey I noticed on The uh, dresser over there, there is a beautiful gold pendant, and I was wondering, would it be possible, please, that I might take that with me? And then the owner of that home would say, of course, we will grant that you can do that, and that they would leave then holding this one little gold pendant. No, that's not what happened at all. You have an entire nation who hates, absolutely hates the Jewish people. And all of a sudden... Their hearts are turned around where all of them go into the vault and they empty all of their valuables to the Jewish people as they are leaving to the extent that they are not even going to be able to carry it all. They will have to drape it on their children. How in the world does something like this happen? How can a phenomenon like this happen? The only explanation is that God is the one who changed the hearts. The Bible says in Proverbs 6, 7, 16, 7, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, if you look at that verse, you will notice that it is the Lord who is the one who takes the one who is predisposed to hating you and turns their heart around, not necessarily to love you, but to be at peace with you. As I consider what has happened here, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. I am not saying when I say that God changes hearts, I am not saying, nor am I even implying, that these Egyptian people became converted and that they became lovers of God. I am not saying that their act was an act of faith or that it was an act of generous love toward God and his people. No, they had something happen where their behavior was changed and their heart was changed, but it doesn't mean they had faith in God. You consider what happened here, looking at it in the big picture. The Hebrews had worked for free for about 400 years without ever getting paid. And if you want to consider the source of this money, humanly speaking, an argument can be made that the wealth of Egypt originated with a Hebrew by the name of Joseph who went into that land and jump-started the economy. So the Egyptians here are not to be commended for giving these gifts. I am simply pointing out that their hearts were turned around and God was the one who did it. And I want to point out this morning, it is also true that God is the one that changes the heart when it comes to salvation. How in the world do you explain Saul of Tarsus? One who was not only a Christian hater, but one who was a Christian killer, and then all of a sudden on the road to Damascus, he has a transformation and he becomes the greatest Christ lover who ever lived. Why? Because God gave him a new heart. And if you will be honest, use your memory, you will have to admit that there was a day when you did not love God. But if you today, Do love God. If you are saved, if you are a lover of Jesus Christ and a hater of sin, the only reason why this has come about is because God is the one that has changed your heart. I was having a discussion this week with someone about the whole idea of predestination versus free will and the whole idea of God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. And the person asked the question saying... Do you believe that people, for the most part, in evangelical Christianity today believe that it is a matter of free will and it is a matter of man's decision and not a matter of predestination or God's sovereignty because they are naturally inclined that way? Or do you believe that that's something that they are taught? And as I thought about it, I came to the conclusion I think. It is that way, well, first of all, because people don't read their Bibles, but I think it is primarily that way because that is the way that people are taught. However, I said, if you were to take someone who was running a hellbound race, someone who had no interest in God, someone who was deeply in love with their sin, someone who just did not have any interest in Christ, and if all of a sudden the light came on, And the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ was revealed to them, and they were turned around, their heart was changed, and you were to intercept them on day one or day two of their salvation. And you were to ask this question, did you, in and of yourself, by yourself, make a decision, without any kind of outside influence, to make this turn around? Or did something from the outside act upon you? First thing they would do is they would laugh. The second thing they would do in 100 out of 100 cases is they would say, there is no way in the world that I was the one that brought this about. It was God that did this work in me. And so we see in the case of the Egyptians that God is the one that changed their hearts. Now let me change directions within this point uh, very briefly And talk about uh, those whom we would consider to be our enemies. Because the Egyptians clearly were the enemies of the Hebrews. John Calvin did a commentary on this passage and he wrote something that is very convicting. It's a little bit convoluted in the way that it's... um, Uh, worded, we just don't talk this way anymore, and so I'm going to ask you to really concentrate, but listen to this quote from John Calvin uh, concerning how we deal with our enemies, and particularly how we fear our enemies. Calvin writes, we have no enemies so fierce and barbarous that it is not easy for him, for God, readily to tame them. If we were surely persuaded of this, that men's hearts are controlled and guided by the secret inspiration of God, we should not so greatly dread their hatred and threatenings and terrors, nor should we be so easily turned from the path of duty through fear of them. End quote. In other words, if we really believed that the hearts of our enemies were in the hands of God and that if he wanted to... He could turn them around, then we would not be so anxious and be so fearful. The passage clearly shows that God changes hearts. And I want to tell you today, if you are not a lover of Jesus Christ, by that I mean if you are not born from above, if you are not born again, if you are not saved, if you are in church today because you feel it is the right or religious thing to do or you feel that it is the polite thing to do to join your family here today or if you just came because you are in some way curious or you're not really even sure why you're here but you are sure that you do not love Jesus Christ and you are not ready to submit to his law, you are not converted, you are not saved and you are fairly obstinate in that. that you're holding your ground saying, I will never become one of these people. Let me say to you, you are absolutely right. You will never become one of these people unless God decides to change your heart. And he can do that. And he can do that in extreme ways. Moses probably had trouble envisioning this voluntary plunder. Some of you today who have unsaved spouses and unsaved children, you probably have difficulty envisioning your spouse being a worshiper of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, if God wants to come after them, he will find them and he will get them and he will change their hearts. You might have trouble envisioning it, but if God wants to do it, he will. Here's truth number two. God uses wealth and money and riches to reveal the condition of our hearts. God uses wealth and money and riches to reveal the condition of our hearts. Now, I'm not speaking this morning about the hearts of the Egyptians. I'm talking about the hearts of the Hebrews, the one to whom it was given these great gifts. When I speak of money today, I want you to know very clearly that money is not a bad thing. Money is a good thing. It is not money that is evil, but it is the love of money that is the root of every kind of evil. 1 Timothy 6.10 Nobody would argue, whether you are a pagan or whether you are a Christian, it is just simply true that money makes the world go round. It's just how we operate in the world here. It's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just the way it is. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself, why in the world has God chosen to arrange the world in this way? That money and wealth and riches is what propels the way we do things. Well, first of all, it's not because he needs anything. Psalm 50 verse 12, the Lord says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. And in that same passage, it says that the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his anyway. Haggai two eight says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. He doesn't need it. He chooses to use it. God talks a lot about money in the Bible. And from what I can detect, the chief end of money is not to gain power, although If you have money, you have power, and the chief end of money is not to buy stuff, although if you do have money, you can buy stuff, but I think biblically speaking, the chief end of money is to reveal the state of your heart. I absolutely hate, I mean with loathing hatred, the new scale that Anna has bought we are a family who has always owned cheap scales. And Anna said, you know what? I'm tired of all these cheap scales that break all the time. We're going to buy a good one. So we spent some money buying a good scale. And doggone it, you know why I hate it so badly? It refuses to lie. It always tells the truth. And for the same reason, I hate mirrors. You look in it, it, it will, the mirror will never cut you a break. And I want to tell you the same can be said of money. Money is going to reveal your heart and it just will not lie. Listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount concerning money being able to reveal where your heart is. Matthew 6, 19-21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, follow the money and you will find your heart. Follow the money and you will find your heart. A parallel passage is over in Luke chapter 12, verses 33 and 34. Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Here we go, same phrase. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Follow the money and you will find your heart. So what do we have? Poor. I mean poor. 400 years poor. Poor Hebrew people. No possessions. And all of a sudden, they are showered with unspeakable wealth. They won the Powerball. They won the lotto. They were showered with gold and silver and 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 very valuable clothing. All of a sudden, those who were slaves are free and those who were poor are rich. Now, what purpose did this wealth serve in their lives? Well, I'll tell you what it should have done. If they were paying attention, it should have taught them that they could trust God's word. Because back in Genesis 15, 14, when the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, and they came into the land. He said, you're going to go into a land that is not your own. And when you come out, it says in Genesis 15, 14, that they shall come out, with great possessions. Hundreds, hundreds of years later, his word came true, and it should tell them that they were truth-tellers. It also should have taught them how to respond to the less fortunate. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15. You used to be poor. You used to be slaves. Now you got a little spending money. What should that teach you? Deuteronomy chapter 15, beginning to read in verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to Him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. He's commanding them to be generous. That's what should have happened. And we read it in the New Testament all the time. Jesus said in Matthew ten eight, Freely you have received, freely give. John the Baptist said in Luke chapter 3, verse 13, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth on the subject of giving, said that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. And that same author, Paul, in 1 Timothy 6.18, writing to Timothy, telling him how he is to address the rich, he says, say to the rich that they are to do good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. Now as I stand before you this morning, I cannot remember the last time that I talked about giving from this pulpit. I really tried to remember, when was the last time we had Specifically, a message on giving from this pulpit. It's Boy, I think it's been, to the best of my memory, it's been over a decade. And the reason that I'm bringing up giving today is not so that we can have a fundraiser, although God in this world does use funds to advance his kingdom, but that's not my point today. My point is to tell you that your money, whether you have a lot of it or whether you have a little bit, will be an indicator of where your heart is. What did the children of Israel do with their wealth which was given to them? Well, different people did different things. Let me take you to Exodus chapter 32. The children of Israel are at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up to meet with God face to face and to receive the law. He was gone a little bit longer than they thought he should have been gone. And they said, what has become of this man Moses? We don't know what has become of him. And so what did they do? They took the wealth that they had. They took the golden earrings that they were given. They submitted them to Aaron. A golden calf was made. And they worshipped that golden calf saying, O Israel... These are your gods that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, what they did is they took their money and they used it to become idolatrous. And many of us do that same thing today. We serve our idols with our wealth. Follow the money and you'll find your heart. Others use the money for the glory of God. We're going to have to do a little Bible study here. So I'm going to ask you please to turn to Exodus chapter 35. Exodus chapter 35 is a chapter in which there is a request for funds to build the tabernacle. All right. The instructions have been given as to how the tabernacle is to be built. Now it's time to build the tabernacle. Notice what it says in Exodus chapter 35 verses 4 through 6. Moses said to the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Nothing is mentioned of a percentage or how much one has to give. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. And then he goes on in the next verses to talk about the different things that they are to bring. Now notice down in verses 20 through 22 what it is that the people did. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose heart moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. And so they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. They actually gave. And notice in verse 29 what it is that happened at the conclusion of this all the men and women the people of israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work of the lord <clears> had <throat> that the lord had commanded by moses to be done brought it as a free will offering to the lord and did they bring enough was the job completed well if you turn to the last chapter of the book of exodus and you read verse 33 exodus 4033 And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen at the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Yes, there was enough. That is really easy to understand. You you, you get it, right? Moses says, we're going to take up an offering. They take up an offering. They bring enough. When they bring it, the work is finished. All right. But let's go just a little bit deeper. If God was powerful enough to speak the world into existence and if this was indeed an age of miracles and it was for God had parted the Red Sea and God had put manna on the ground six days a week for 40 years. If all of this was happening and God had this power, could God out in the midst of the desert have not just turned the dust into gold? Well, he certainly could have, but he chose not to. He chose rather to use the contributions of the children of Israel. Items which were freely given to them as parting gifts when they left Egypt. Here's the point of the sermon this morning. The reason why God gave them those goods in the first place, and remember God gave them those goods by changing the hearts of the Egyptians, the reason why they got them in the first place is so that they could give them away. Let me repeat that. The point of the sermon today is that the reason why this plunder was given to them is so that they could give it away. And when I ask you about you and I ask Do you really believe that every gift that you have is from God? I know you can quote James 1.17, that every good gift and perfect gift is from God. But do you really believe within your heart of hearts that everything that you have, all of your gifts, all of your talents, all of your abilities, all of your wealth, all of your skill, all of your knowledge, all of your ingenuity all of the work ethic that you possess, everything that you possess, do you really believe within your heart of hearts that what you have is a free gift from God? I know you believe it theologically, but do you believe it in your heart of hearts? Well, if you do, I'm going to ask you this morning to stop and to think and to acknowledge God and to give thanks. And then I'm going to ask you the key question. Whether you are rich or whether you are struggling, why do you think God gave you what he gave you? Like, did he have any kind of purpose in the distribution of wealth that's in this room right now? Do you, do you, do you, have you ever stopped to say, Lord, why have you given me what you have given me? Well, I mean, the simple answer from an economics point of view is that he gave you what you have so that you could be sustained. And yes, you do need to be sustained, and no one would argue with that. But again, I don't think that's the primary use of money. I think he gave you what he gave you, be it little or be it much. He gave it to you in order to test you. Not that he didn't know what the answers to the test were, but he gave it to test you and to show you where your heart stands. Now, as I stand before you today, I have no idea what you give. The only people in the church that I know what they give are my wife and I. For bookkeeping purposes and tax and legal purposes, the trustees need to know who gives what, but they are the only people who know who gives what. Elders don't know, the deacons don't know, Unless you tell someone they don't know what you give. But you know what you give. And that knowledge of what you give is to serve as a reflection of where your heart is. It is like that really good scale that you step on that will always tell you the truth. Follow the money and it will tell you where your heart is. And God uses wealth and possessions to show you where your heart is. Which brings us to the last point this morning, and that is that the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. Now here's where I see the gospel in the passage. The reason why they got what they got was so that they would give it away. What were they giving it to? They were giving it to the building of the tabernacle. What was the purpose of the tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle was not a place where the people would come and meet like this with rows and pews and where they would hear a sermon. The tabernacle was a portable tent with a lot of different furniture in it. The furniture, I don't mean like a sofa and a dresser, but furniture, I mean the lampstand and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the table of showbread and the and the, the, um, the veil and so on and so forth. The, it, it was a, a tabernacle with a lot of furniture in it, And every piece of that furniture and everything in that tabernacle was a visual portrait of Jesus Christ and the gospel, especially the shedding of blood which pointed to the cross of Jesus Christ, where on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, the priest would enter into a room or a section of the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat. It all pointed to Jesus Christ and every earring and scarf and necklace that was donated was donated so that the temple might be erected and so that the gospel might be preached visually to the covenant people of God. Now, that tabernacle later became the temple, and the only difference between the two is that one is portable and that the other is stationary, but both of them had one purpose, and the purpose was to point to Jesus Christ. And then we read in the New Testament that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us or dwelt among us. And people talk about the coming of Jesus Christ, particularly at Christmas time. And the question is asked, why did he come? And some people will come to the conclusion, like whoever it was that put that Son of God movie together, that his purpose in coming was to change the world. No, his purpose wasn't to change the world. The world may have been changed by him, but that wasn't his purpose. And some people will say, even the Muslims will say, he came as a great prophet. Well, indeed, he was the greatest prophet that ever lived, but that wasn't why he came. And some will say that he came as a great teacher. No one ever spoke like he spoke, but that was not primarily his purpose for coming. Some people said that the reason why he came was to train his disciples. And indeed, he did train his disciples so that the work might go on, but that is not why he came. The primary reason why the Word became flesh, the primary reason why we got a tabernacle here on earth, God coming, Emmanuel, to be with man It's stated in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life. There's the gospel. To give His life a ransom for many. To give His life on the cross for His people. This is also the heart of God the Father. We so often quote John 3.16, But do we ever camp out on the word Gave. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, freely gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, gave His most precious possession, We're not talking here about some Egyptians going into a vault and bringing out some necklaces. We are talking about the eternal Son of God being given. Given to be humiliated. Given to being pierced. Given to being crucified. Given to bear the wrath of God for God's people. We're talking about the ultimate gift. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. You cannot even begin to comprehend the love of God that would cause him to give like this. He gave his life's blood on Calvary, not for his friends, but for wretches and for sinners like me and you. You think Egypt and the Hebrews were enemies of one another? They were enemies of one another. But compared to you and God, they were friends. You and God are real enemies. And he left his throne in heaven to come and to die for sinners like you and me. Because he loves us. He gave his life to us because he loves us. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So follow the money. And it will lead you to your heart. The wealth that was given to Israel was given so that they in turn would give it to the building of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was built so that a picture might be drawn of Christ, who did nothing but give, give his life for sinners. And when you now make the application question, what about your giving? I simply ask, is it a reflection of the gospel or is it a reflection of your pride? When Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about giving, he could have used any motivation, but he chose to use the best motivation. Second Corinthians eight nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you that. Do, do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, do you realize where you would be without the gospel? Do you realize where you will be because of the gospel? Do you realize where you are because of the gospel? Do you realize what the gospel has done for you? You know, not just in your head, but experientially, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that he was rich, and yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so now it comes time for you to give. And I want to tell you today when you give, do not give. Do not give because of duty or responsibility. Now, let there be no mistake. If you are a church member, you have made a covenant, you made a promise before God. You have a duty, you have a responsibility. You have covenanted with the people here to give. Don't do it because you're responsible, don't do it out of duty. Don't do it in order to get back. Turn on your television, you will see evangelists who will tell you that you can become rich if you will simply give. Doing that is just an act of selfishness. They're charlatans, they just want your money. You don't give in order to get back. That is so selfish. Do not do it so that you will receive. And do not do it out of guilt. You've committed a horrible sin. Now you're going to get back in God's graces by writing a large check to a missionary? Do not do it to appease your guilt. Do not do it with a strict percentage. As if you were paying a bill. Do not do it to be seen by men. If you give anything and you speak about it to another person, Jesus says that is clear hypocrisy. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do it secret secretly without telling a soul. No, you don't give for any of those reasons. Here's the reason why you give. You give because you want to. And the reason why you want to is because the Son of God gave it all for you. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You don't have to give. You get to give. I love it when ushers will pray and they will say something like, thank you for the opportunity that we have to give. Because remember, the reason why the people of Israel, who were poor and who were slaves and who were redeemed, the reason why they were given is so that they would give. And so after looking at God's generous heart, Christ's total sacrifice to save you from your sin, you still struggle to give to the Lord's church or to missions or to the needy. It's, it's one of two things. Either you have really lost focus on the gospel. I mean, you might be saved, but, but the gospel clearly is not in front of you. Or you don't know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have never experienced the power of the gospel in your heart. You, you don't really know what he gave for you. I mean, you know, but because you live in a Christianized nation, that he gave himself for your sins. But it doesn't mean anything to you. So you may not even be saved. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not saying that you should start giving so that you can be saved. I'm saying you should repent and believe the gospel so that you might be saved. But if you are saved with the gospel in focus, nobody is ever going to have to urge you to give. True Christians with the gospel in view will be eager to give. The gospel is of first importance. Father in heaven, we've studied today what is a very practical passage, but Lord, we've studied today a passage which is also very theological in nature, and so Lord, I pray that it would be the theology that would drive our practicality, that it would be the gospel that would be the fervor of our hearts that would cause us, Lord, to love you, to grow, to be nurtured, to give. Help us, Lord, to do that for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.